All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the weekly UK Sangha. Um, this is an open call, open to anyone. Anyone can join. Um, we get together every week and I teach the Dhamma here and anyone is welcome to come teach the Dhamma as well or ask questions or just tag along for the ride. So today I picked out uh, some suttas to read, or one sutta in particular, uh, MN22, the simile of the snake. And uh, I'm not going to read the first part. I'm just going to jump to um, the actual similes that are uh, towards the end of it. Um, the first part is just some guy that has a pernicious view and his pernicious view is that um, obstructions are not obstructive and they pretty much say like no you're wrong <laughs> like obstructions are obstructive and so it's kind of you know uh, you get the point of it that's pretty much all it is and then uh, um, it continues on with uh, the simile of the snake here, bhikkhus, some misguided men learn the Dhamma, discourses, stanzas, expositions, verses, exclamations, sayings, birth stories, marvels, and answers to questions. But having learned the Dhamma, they do not examine the meaning of the teachings with wisdom. Not examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom, they do not gain a reflective acceptance of them. Instead, they learn the Dhamma only for the sake of criticizing others and, and for winning in debates. And they do not experience the good for the sake of which they learn the Dhamma. Those teachings, being wrongly grasped by them, conduce to their harm and suffering for a long time. All right, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, so like people can uh, use the Dhamma for the sake of winning arguments. Um, I can't say that I haven't done this before, but <laughs> it, the point is to not. Uh, hey, welcome, Isaiah. Hello. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. How you doing? Doing good. Just roasting some coffee right now. That's about OK, it. good, good. Yeah, no, we're just reading a sutta about the simile of a snake. And uh, okay. the the first paragraph you missed is some people learn the Dhamma without actually like getting the meaning of it, but they just know it like intellectually to win arguments. Um, oh. Yeah, and this is in the sutta, canonical sutta. And like the funny thing is like, there's so many things in the actual suttas that the Buddha predicted that it's going to happen. And then to this day, people are still doing it because yeah. it's like it's just like a fundamental uh, thing that humans are going to do. Like they're going to posture, try to put themselves above other people. So, like, oh, I'm important. I'm this big. I mean, there's some monks that are like, oh, I'm this big, important monk. And uh, that's my identity. And like, you have no right to how dare you talk about the Dhamma or how dare you teach the Dhamma, right? Uh, yeah. I'm an academic, right? So they have like kind of like this uh, whole like big ego <laughs> about it instead of just getting like the fruit, the fruit of the Dhamma by uh, 
grasping it correctly. Um, yeah. okay. That's funny. Um, yeah, it sounds uh, familiar on the nose on that one. He is. Yeah, like I, I mean, I'm not gonna say that I haven't uh, used it to win arguments, but it it depends. Like, it depends whether you get the meaning of it. Um, well, yeah. But the the point is, uh, I think there's another sutta that says if it's not if it's not stated in the sutta or and the vinya. It's not mm. the Dhamma. So there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of uh, Dharma or Dhamma that's taught that's not in the actual canonical suttas. It's like in mm. the later literature and they teach it as if it was the teaching of the Buddha. And the Buddha actually predicted this would happen. And he, so he said, if that if that's not in the Sutta or the Vinaya, it's not the Dhamma. I didn't say yeah. that shit. Like, <laughs> like the Buddha quote, I did not say that shit. Bruh. <laughs> yeah, I did not say that, bro. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And then, but in the in the canon too, he he does also argue with other people from different sects, but it's almost always to make sure that they get the right view, so that they themselves get the fruit of the teaching. Yeah. So. yeah. I, welcome, Pietro. Good to have you. Good to see you. Um. Yeah. So, um, the Buddha mainly uh, corrects people um that are misrepresenting the buddhist teaching so most of the time with the pernicious view and the correcting um it's that they've misrepresented the dhamma as taught by the buddha and then also other wanderers and other sects that think that they understand the dhamma in the way that the buddha has comprehended and those taught by the buddha and those that realize the same enlightenment actually don't understand it in that way like they don't understand the dependent origination they haven't seen um they haven't seen the impermanent independent nature of uh feelings um thoughts um perception and all sensory phenomena um but they say oh yeah we we get that we get that too no they don't but um anyways i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna continue with the the sutta the simile of a snake Suppose a man uh, needing a snake, seeking a snake, wandering in search of a snake, saw a large snake and grasped its coils or its tail. It would turn back on him and bite his hand or his arm or one of his limbs. And because of that, he would come to death or deadly suffering. Why is that? Because of his wrong grasp of the snake. So too, here some misguided men learn the Dhamma, those teachings, being wrongly grasped by them, conduced to their harm and suffering for a long time. Right. So you can, if you if you grasp the the Dhamma wrongly, if you use it for anything other than its intended purpose, it will bite you. So. Um, what is the Dhamma's intended purpose? I'm a, can anyone answer that? DJ? Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's right. <laughs> right. So that's what this all is about. This is this whole thing. If it's, if the Dhamma is anything other than about, um, um, understanding, uh, dissatisfaction and bringing it into dissatisfaction, kind of missing the whole point of it. Uh, so that's would be grasping it in the wrong this the metaphorical snake in the wrong place. 
and you get bit, uh, bit by it. Here's some bhikkhus, some clansmen, learn the Dhamma, discourses, answers to questions. And having learned the Dhamma, they examine the meaning of those teachings with wisdom. Examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom, they gain a reflective acceptance of them. They do not learn the Dhamma for the sake of criticizing others or for winning debates, and they experience the good for the sake of which they learn the Dhamma. Those teachings, being rightly grasped by them, conduce to their welfare and happiness for a long time. Right, so the Dhamma is universal to anyone who reads it and understands it. So anyone can uh, read the original teachings of the Buddha, uh, ponder the teachings with wisdom, reflect on the teachings with wisdom, see how it applies in your real life experience, and then get the fruit of it. So it's open to anyone. Um, it's on the internet completely for free. Anyone can Google it. <laughs> um, suppose a man needing a snake, seeking a snake, wandering in search of a snake, saw a large snake and caught it rightly with a cleft stick. And having done so, grasped it rightly by the neck. And then although the snake might, might wrap its coils around his hand or his arm or his limbs, still he would not come to death or deadly suffering because of that, right? So the, the way that he grabbed the snake is by the neck, pressing his head like this. Can't buy you that way. Why is that? Because of his right grasp of the snake. So too, here some clansmen learn the Dhamma. Those teachings, being rightly grasped by them, conduce to their welfare and happiness for a long time. Therefore, bhikkhus, when you understand the meaning of my statements, remember it accordingly. And when you do not understand the meanings of, meaning of my statements, then ask either me about it or those bhikkhus who are wise, right? So if you understand the meanings of the statements of the Buddha, then great. That's uh, the experiential fruit, the experiential happiness uh, that you'll gain from that. If you don't understand it, you can ask. There are still um, people who are wise who teach the Dhamma here and now today. To this day, you can ask them. Um, Okay, so that's the simile of the snake. The next, um, does before I move on, does anyone have any questions about uh, the simile of the snake? Okay, yeah, it's fairly straightforward. Um, the next, uh, the next simile is the simile of the raft. Okay, Bikus, I shall show you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, the bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. Bhikkhus, suppose a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water, whose near shore was dangerous and fearful 
and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then he thought, there is a great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful and whose further shore is safe and free from fear. But there is no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bind them together into a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across uh, to the far shore. And then the man collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bound them together into a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with his hands and feet, he got safely across to the far shore. Then when he had got across and had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now, bhikkhus, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with that raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what, by doing what would that man be doing what should be done with that raft? That's kind of a tongue twister. By <laughs> that's a funny translation. By doing what would that man be doing what should be done with that raft? Here be goose. When that man got across, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever seen those those memes where it's like intentionally like the wrong words on the. <laughs> it's like there where whom should be, and you're like trying to read. <laughs> Trying to read it. Here, Bikus, when that man got across and had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus. This raft has been very helpful to me since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet. I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift into the water and then go wherever I want. Now, bhikkhus, it is by doing so that that man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I should. Sh uh, so I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Bhikkhus, when you know the Dhamma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even good states how much more so bad states okay so that's the last line is uh pretty important here so i'm going to read it again bhikkhus when you know the dhamma to be similar to a raft you should abandon even good states how much more so bad states okay so in this simile is it essentially like 
once you get free from the hindrance, even if it's momentarily, then that's enough. And that's all you do. You don't wait to do something more. You don't wait to, to like, uh, rouse up any, I guess, even wholesome states. Like, just freedom from the hindrances is enough, even if it's in that moment. And you don't have to do anything else aside from that. Is that kind of, like, what it's pointing to? Um, so, the when you are free from... Um the hindrances and you enter into first jhana okay um certain processes of your mind uh that were creating suffering before uh have come to an end right and then now you experience uh the pleasure born dependent upon those uh processes of mind or hindrances coming to an end now um, um, normally what you guys will do is, ooh, yes, give me that pleasure. Mm, I like this, right? <laughs> You're like, you, you, you got some pleasure, good states, um, because you understand, uh, one of the four noble truths, uh, suffering and then, um, its origin. So a hindrance, and then you experience the third noble truth. Uh, it's passing away, and then you grasp onto the pleasure born out of this experience. So it's a good state, it's a pleasurable abiding, and you you latch onto it and you want it to stay. And because you want it to stay, and because you latch onto it, it bites you, uh, because uh, the jhana or the pleasurable state or the sukha and the piti is inherently impermanent and inherently uh, unsatisfactory either. So the thing to do um, when you get into jhana is keep going with the meditation or keep going with the right view, keep going with the non-grasping, right? It's the non-grasping that got you out of the bad state to begin with, right? So it's because you did not cling to bad states that the aversion to those bad states uh, came to an end. And when a good state arises, you don't cling to that either. Because if you cling to that, um, it's going to just trap you in the same um, clinging that was creating your dukkha to begin with. So you keep going uh, with an indifference to the good or bad states. And all that we're concerned about is how does uh, the process of mind work and how does suffering come about? How does it go away? And what is the way leading it to it going away? So when you get into the jhana, you see experientially how it went away and the way leading to it. So what is the way leading to um, suffering going away? Uh, what's the first, what's the most important um, part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Does anyone know? You can make the three right view, right investigation, right effort. That's right. But right view is the yeah. pinnacle. So there's another sutta that states uh, right view is the pinnacle. So, so right view here would be just simply view the state the good state as what it is and not grasp to it. 
So this is Sukha. This is Fiti. This is uh, Ataka Vichara. This is the applied and sustained wholesome thought. And you're just viewing the, these things happening without um, grasping to them or saying, oh, this is mine or this is my jhana or look how good a meditator I am. I got into jhana and this is mine. And then when it goes away, it's going to bite you. And then you suffer when you're not in the jhana anymore. If you're just doing right view, when the jhana comes to an end and the unwholesome thought comes back or uh, hindrance comes back or uh, dukkha, any, any type of restlessness or fear comes back, you're not going to be you're going to be just looking at that also with indifference. So you're going to be uh, equanimous to either good or bad states. And this um, this practice leads to the cultivation of uh, wisdom. So the wisdom I will awaken if you don't get too um, uh, mesmerized or enchanted by the jhanas. The whole point of the jhanas is to understand uh, dependent origination more thoroughly. So to understand us uh, suffering, the arisal of suffering, the passing away and the way leading to it passing away. Um, experientially with the what's going on in uh, in all of your moment to moment experiences. So the perception of the mind of raw data, the feelings that arise because of it, um, all of the sights, uh, sounds, um, taste, smells and touch that you experience. Um, the point is to understand how these things are going on. Uh, that's that's would be the wisdom. Um, and then if you keep going to that, you'll see that there is an escape beyond the first jhana. So you keep viewing past it. You keep viewing the meditation. You don't get um, caught up in the first jhana. You 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 are. Um, it is because you're satisfied with the way things are that you don't grasp to the first jhana. So when you say the hindrance is gone and this is enough, yes, this is enough. But it's this is enough before the hindrance is gone too, and this is enough past the first jhana and the second jhana and all the way to fruition, which is the fruition of this is enough. So seeing that the first jhana is just an imper permanent and personal thing, you can go past it, um, see that there is an escape beyond this, and then uh, you keep if you keep viewing. If you keep right viewing uh, the nature of your experience, eventually it will take you all the way to um, the experience of Nibbana. And then uh, once you experience uh, Nibbana, then you can you see there's nothing, uh, there's no further state beyond this. There's nothing beyond this. And um, you don't, and then the Nibbana, the, even Nibbana is like a raft. You don't cling to Nibbana either. Um, that would be a wrong grasping of the Dhamma. But good question, Isaiah. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. I appreciate that clarification. So it's basically just see the right view is just seeing that it's cause and effect that I guess first John or freedom from the hindrances is not that special anyways. And just seeing, oh, I do this and I get here. The what's special about the freedom of the hindrances and the attainment of first jhana is the uh, is the actual direct experience of how does suffering 
um, come to an end. That's what's important. So remember, always bring it back to the Four Noble Truths. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock of the Dhamma. Uh, so, so the point is not to, yes, the point is to enjoy the jhana, enjoy it, be satisfied, um, soak it in. But the, the, the jhana uh, is a vehicle for wisdom, for understanding how does suffering come about? How does my mind create suffering? And how does my mind stop creating suffering? And you see that when you are in jhana is because you're not thinking about shit that's making you feel bad. It's you're just you're lighten you lighten up. You don't you don't think about stuff that isn't here right now. You don't think mm -hmm. about anything that's um, mentally proliferating, and you don't and the thoughts that are thinking about things that aren't here and mentally proliferating. You don't take that to be me, so you just let them happen without getting engaged with them, without feeding them. Um, yeah okay that thank you for clarifying that so just like keep bringing it back to the four noble truths and yeah. that's good enough and then you say yeah just you keep viewing keep viewing don't all right looking don't 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 say okay now i'm going to stop looking and then when you wind up back in dukkha you don't know how you got back in dukkha you, well you got back in dukkha because you stopped looking at what's going on right yeah that's ignorance Mm -hmm. uh, so, so uh, yeah, be, become fascinated by it. Become curious. You know the the enthusiasm and the joy of discovering. How does this work? Is the secret to the secret to the end of suffering? It's, I mean, the it, it the 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 looking and the investigation further fuels the the joy for it. Right, the joy mm -hmm. of discovery. Like, wow, I'm finding out stuff even yeah. when you even when you find out your own dukkha and you look at your own dukkha you get happy because of it because ha now i'm spotting my own dukkha yeah. um before you try run from it but uh the sotapan finds joy in looking at their own dukkha because they're turning up that rock and seeing what's under it so okay, okay. I'm going to continue with the, the sutta, but very good questions, Isaiah. Thanks for uh, um, asking. Um, um, okay, so the next one is standpoints for views. Bhikkhus, there are six standpoints for views. What are the six? Here, Bhikkhus, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards material form thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. He regards feeling thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. He regards perception thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. Does it, um, so the word perception here, um, I feel like can be misunderstood. So is there anyone who wants to explain what the Buddha means by perception?
Okay, so perception. It. I got it. Okay, go. DJ. Oh, no, I'd rather hear like an explanation. Yeah. All right, DJ. Oh Wait. no. Um. From what I like understand, like perception is sort of like, on on one hand, it is sort of like the the labeling of things like okay this is a head this is a hand this is a phone but one of the ways that i found more thoroughly beyond like language to point to it in a way is like well it's okay like hand from non-hand in like like the foreground from the background in a way might be a, another way to look at perception as well yeah yeah, so uh, perception is the process of mind um, that interprets reality to make sense of it and this this process of mind that interprets reality uh usually interprets things in in um in the through the lens of self and other subject and object right so this is me and that's not me um making boundaries around things perceiving things so i see i have the raw data of my vision right and then i categorize and interpret what I'm actually seeing, right? But this process of perception, it's fine that it's not a problem that's happening. We need perception to like be a functioning organism, like a functioning human. But this pro process of perception is happening on its own. So you might think that you are the one who's um, labeling things or um, you are the one who's interpreting your experiences, but really this process is arising um, impersonally like the weather or like the clouds. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, you know, you look at a table, there's the vision of the table, and then, but you, there's something that happens that goes, this is a table. Even if you don't think that discursive thought, this is a table, you look at a table and know it's a table. Mm -hmm. So that's perception. Um, okay, so he regards perception thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. He regards formations thus. And formations is pretty much just like anything that's a thing that's formed out of other things. So like a Sankara. So pretty much all of it is formations, like all of the things that you experience are formations. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. He, he regards what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought, mentally pondered upon. Thus, this is, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. And this standpoint for views, namely, this is self, this is the world. Oh, okay, this is self, this the world. After death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. This too he regards thus. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. Bhikkhus, a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their Dhamma, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their Dhamma, regards material form thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. He regards feeling thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. 
Okay, so that's very important for feeling. So you guys feel, you feel whatever it is, you feel like a painful emotion, you feel a painful feeling, you feel a painful sensation, anxiety, um, worry, uh, even dread. Um, the, the problem is not the feeling, the problem is thinking that this is me, right? That's when the feeling becomes unbearable. That's when, because we, we ignorantly take ownership of it. And so now we're burdened by it. So we have a painful feeling and we don't see it as me. This is not mine. This is not me. I don't own this feeling. Then we can allow the feeling to pass through without um, taking ownership of it and carrying it around longer than we need it, need to carry it around. Right, so good, good or bad feelings, right? Pleasant or painful feelings, they're both not self. He regards feeling thus, this is not mine. This I am not, this is not myself. He regards perception thus, this is not mine. This I am not, this is not myself. He regards formations thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. He regards what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought, mentally pondered upon, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And this standpoint for views, namely, this is self, this the world, after death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, I shall endure as long as, as eternity, this too he regards thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Since he regards them thus, he is not agitated about what is non-existent. So he is not agitated about what is non-existent. There, what, what isn't there doesn't agitate him. So what's not here isn't really my problem. And what is here even isn't my problem either because it's not me, right? So something not being self is essentially the same as saying that's not my problem. Right. So this, what I'm thinking about is not my problem. What I'm experiencing is not my problem. What I'm feeling is not my problem because it's not me. And it doesn't belong to me either. Right. Agitation. When this was said, a certain bhikkhu asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non-existent externally? There can be, Bhikkhu. The Blessed One said, Here, Bhikkhu, someone thinks thus. Alas, I had it. Alas, I have it no longer. Alas, may I have it. Alas, I do not get it. Then he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. That is how there is agitation about what is non-existent externally. That is, does that does that sound familiar to you guys? Have you 
So this is fundamental about the human condition. This is the same reason why people suffer today, is what the Buddha was talking about way then. Oh, I had it. Now I don't have it anymore. I might have it, but I didn't, but I don't get it. Whatever it is, right? Could be um, your ex-girlfriend. <laughs> that's a common one. <laughs> oh, I had it, but I have it no longer. So um, what do you do when you uh, when there's agitation about uh, what is non-existent? Um, you sorrow, grieve, lament, and weep and become distraught. Right? So that's how the agitation uh, works with those kinds of thoughts. Um, is there any question about that before I go on? No? Okay. Venerable Sir, can there be no agitation about what is non-existent externally? There can be, Bhikkhu. The Blessed One said, Here, Bhikkhu, someone does not think thus. Alas, I had it. Alas, I have it no longer. Alas, may I have it. Alas, I do not get it. Then he does not sorrow, grieve, and lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. That is how there is no agitation about what is non-existent externally. All right, so you, you get rid of these thoughts. That's the same as uh, throwing out unwholesome thoughts. And, or even, so let's say you are having those thoughts. Uh, I, I had it and it's gone. Or I want it and I don't get it. So let's say those thoughts are already happening, then don't don't view those thoughts as me. Those aren't my thoughts, right? Those thoughts are just arising because of past conditionings. So past sankharas, uh, habits that were formed in the past that are continuing into the future. And to break out of the cycle, you have to realize that these thoughts are just happening because of the causes and conditions, and they're not actually you. So that's how you can make a change and then actually stop thinking those kinds of thoughts. Um, Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non-existent internally? There can be, Bhikkhu. The Blessed One said, here, Bhikkhu, someone has the view, this is self, this is the world. After death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. He hears the Tathagata or a disciple of the Tathagata teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies for the stilling of all four formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for nibbana. He thinks thus, so I shall be annihilated, so I shall perish, so I shall be no more. Then he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. This is how there is agitation about what is non-existent internally. Venerable Sir, can there be no agitation about what is non-existent internally? There can be, Bhikkhu. The Blessed One said, Here, Bhikkhus, 
Someone does not have the view. This is self. I shall endure as long as eternity. He hears the Tathagata or disciple of the Tathagata teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, for the relinquishment of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for Nibbana. He does not think thus, so I shall be annihilated, so I shall perish, so I shall be no more. Then he does not sorrow, grieve, and lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. That is how there is no agitation about what is non-existent internally. All right. So that's the end of that little section. Um, I'm going to, like, it makes sense to me. It, I'm going to keep going unless there's a question about it. Okay. All right, the next one is uh, impermanence and not self. Because you may well acquire that possession that is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and that might endure as long as eternity. But do you see any such possession, Bhikkhus? No, venerable sir. Good, Bhikkhus. I too do not see any possession that is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and that might endure as long as eternity. All right, so the Buddha is essentially saying, like, yeah, show me something that's permanent. Can you find it? <laughs> Like, can you guys think of anything or find anything that's actually permanent that does not change? I can't. <laughs> All right, so that's essentially what the Buddha is saying. Uh, <laughs> Bhikkhus, you may well cling to that doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and, dis and despair in one who clings to it. But do you see any such doctrine of self, Bhikkhus? No, venerable sir, good bhikkhus. I too do not see any uh, see any doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who clings to it. Right. So, um, a lot of people in non-duality who cling to the doctrine of the eternal self, um, that doesn't actually lead to the destruction of craving or nibbana. So, like. That, that actual clinging, clinging to self or being eternal self actually causes them um, agitation and uh, suffering. How much, however much they try to uh, deny it, right? Um, for one who has seen, who has experienced Nibbana or the destruction of craving and refers to it as the self, um, really what they're just referring to is um, seeing things as they actually are or uh, the Dhammakaya, the full body of things. Um, so essentially what they call what they're calling the self is just what's left uh, when there's no craving. So a mind without craving is the self. But that's not a good teaching because that doesn't lead to that teaching does not lead to a mind without craving if you like um 
if you look at a lot of the people within those traditions who started teaching that, like like someone like Ramana Maharshi or something like that, usually they had like a spontaneous awakening. They just woke up and then now they're trying to make explain it to other people. And how do they explain it? Well, they explain it with what they grew up around in India and in like the Hindu traditions. So they say, oh, it's the self, but really that it's not. So the Buddha is, the Buddha's awakening is unsurpassed and there may be lower levels of awakening. And there may be people with who um, even attain to um, boundless consciousness and they take it wrongly to be self who also are causing agitation for themselves even though they have attained a very refined state of consciousness um, and may be able to do it again, it's still not the same as uh, the unsurpassed awakening of the Buddha. Um, so there is like a more sublime uh, realization beyond it. Um, Bhikkhus, you may well cling to that doctrine of self uh, that would not arouse uh, okay, because you may well take as a, as a support that view that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who takes it as a support. But do you see any such support of views, Bikus? No, venerable sir. Good, Bikus. I do not see any such support of views that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who takes it as support. Bhikkhus, there being a self, would there be uh, what belongs to myself? Yes, venerable sir. Or there being what belongs to a self, would there be myself? Yes, venerable sir. Right, so these, these two things are codependent arising. So with the self, there comes that which belongs to a self, right? So this is with a self comes, this is my body. So my body belongs to myself. And um, with what belongs to myself comes, creates the self. So th if this is my body, that creates the self. So these two things are codependent arising. Because since a self and what belongs to a self are not apprehended as true and established, then this standpoint for views, namely, this is self, this is the world. After death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. Would it not be utterly and completely foolish teaching? What else could it be, venerable sir? It would be an utterly and completely foolish teaching. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Right, so there you have it, the, the three characteristics of reality right there. And it's, it's, it's very um, important how he segues these three characteristics, right? So I'm going to read that um, paragraph again because it's pretty important. 
Bikus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is permanent? I mean, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Right, so are, is experience impermanent or permanent? It's impermanent. And is something that's impermanent suffering or happiness? It's suffering because something that comes and goes inherently is not uh, a source of last lasting satisfaction. So it will create suffering. Even a jhana, right? <laughs> Even first jhana. Um, and guys, if you're raising your hand or anything, I'm switching tabs. So just if you want to ask a question, just interrupt me during it. Um, Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is feeling, is perception, our formation, is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change uh, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Right, so that's, that's how um, Anicca links to dukkha links to anatta so what is changing can't be you right does that make sense like that's pretty straightforward like if it's comes and goes it's not you because you would be gone if it was you right you'd be gone with it um right, it's a pretty straightforward um Therefore, because any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Any kind of feeling whatsoever, any kind of perception whatsoever, any kind of formations whatsoever, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. All consciousness should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus, bhikkhus, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Being disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. He understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had had to be done has been done, there is no more coming into any state of being. Right. So Nibbana is pretty much like the total fruition realization of not of no self. 
you you because you stop clinging to what what doesn't belong to you um with disenchantment comes dispassion and with dispassionment dispassion comes the uh the end of craving so you stop crave for anything and then you will experience uh nibbana and then uh that is the total unsurpassed enlightenment or awakening um the end of suffering uh whatsoever um let's see how much time are we at yeah it's like we we really cling like to the you know it's just the the same thing like we we have uh like uh i think since we are kids uh, like we have a, a little toy it's like the beautiful thing ever and then uh, we see a spot of something new and uh the the one we have now it's like a shit uh, and so we want the new one and so as as soon as you hear something like uh more uh, that in your mind desire or something you go okay i go for that i go for that <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah exactly that's that's the thought alas may i have it and then when so you go for that you go for that and when you don't get it you oh i didn't get it and then so yeah. that will create uh sorrow lamentation and despair right yeah. so those kind so you can see so those thoughts aren't a problem but when you see those thoughts understand them see what oh look look my mind's doing again my mind's creating dukkha <laughs> right so it's interesting right um we can see so like it's not that like all of a sudden you're gonna stop have like having any thoughts about anything or whatever but you can see the the cause and effect of these thoughts you can see oh this thought creates uh leads to the end of dukkha or this thought creates dukkha so there's pretty much just two kinds of thoughts. There's dukkha thoughts and there's dukkha nirodha thoughts. So uh, the more you pay attention, the the more you can guide the mind in the dukkha nirodha direction. And uh, so apply and sustain one wholesome thought after another. This uh, back the uh, fundamentals, right? Um, and then you know the really start to you get into refined, collected singleness of mind. Uh, you can really see um, formations, subtle and gross, consciousness, perception, uh, Vedana. You can see in the not-self, and uh, that's how you uh, attain to Nibbana. Um, I, I like I liked it when you said that uh, before, uh, that uh, uh, this process creates wisdom, because it's not like by trying to grasp at wisdom that you can actually get wisdom, but it's by doing this process that you described. Yeah. yeah. So even wisdom, like everything else, is dependently originated. So this is the process by which wisdom arises. So ignorance and wisdom are both um, paticca samupada. So uh, with ignorance comes the arisal of all the things that cause suffering and um, views, views of self. So views that this is me. It's not that it's not that the self ever was there, ever is there, ever will be there. It's the view that this is a self arises. Right. So people think that the self arises and then practicing the Dhamma, the self goes away. No, the self was never there to begin with. It's just the view that this is me, right? This is, it's always just been, shit has been happening and there's no self there, right? 
but we don't know that because we didn't pay we didn't pay attention investigate reality um so wisdom as uh pietro is talking about and wisdom comes about how does it come about right view right it starts with right view so taking a look at what's going on uh okay so i'm gonna keep going um let's see uh yeah, we're almost to the end. Yeah, we could finish this. Um, okay, so the next one is the Arhat. Arhant. Bikus. This Biku is called one who who one whose shaft. <laughs> all, right, all right, sorry. <laughs> one whose shaft has been lifted. <laughs> all right, forgive, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> Forgive my chuckles. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> whose trench has been filled in, whose pillar has been uprooted, one who has no bar, a noble one whose banner is lowered, whose burden is lowered, who is unfettered. Right? So in the sutta, don't get mad at me that it says that Bhikkhu Bodhi decided to translate it as one whose shaft has been lifted. But that's the way <laughs> that's the way that it says it. <laughs> um, and how is the bhikkhu one whose shaft has been lifted? Here, here the bhikkhu has abandoned ignorance, has cut it off at the roots, made it like a palm stump, done away with it, so that it is no longer subject to further arising. That is how the bhikkhu is one whose shaft has been lifted and how is the bhikkhu one whose trench has been filled in here the bhikkhu has abandoned the round of births that brings renewed being has cut it off at the roots so that it is no longer subject to further arising that is how uh, the bhikkhu whose trench has been filled in right so he's no longer coming into any state of being so essentially, uh, with the cultivation and the fruition of right view, you see, um, like you've just come into experiencing things as they are, um, where they are in the moment, and there's not, there's nothing like you're not going any anywhere. Like, <laughs> um, does that make sense? Like, so all, all of your consciousness all of your perceptions all of your um um senses are arising and passing away experience right where they are and you're not becoming something else in the future right so that the view that that there is a self with the view that there is a self comes the uh being reborn into something else in the future or becoming something in the future Right. So what am I going to become when I die? What am I going to become um, next moment? What am I going to become tomorrow? What's what's to become of me? Right. So these thoughts have been cut off at the root. The thought the thoughts of what what will become of me go away because you realize there is no me to become it. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Um, and how is the bhikkhu one whose pillar has been uprooted, 
Here the bhikkhu has abandoned craving, has cut it off at the root, so that is no longer subject to further arising. That is how the bhikkhu is one whose pillar has been uprooted. And how is the bhikkhu one who has no bar? Here the bhikkhu has abandoned the five lower fetters, has cut them off at the root, so that they are no longer subject to future arising. That is how the bhikkhu is one who has no bar. And how is the bhikkhu a noble one whose banner is lowered, whose burden is lowered, who is unfettered? Here a bhikkhu has abandoned the conceit I am, has cut it off at the root, so that it is no longer subject to future arising. That is how the bhikkhu is, is a noble one whose banner is lowered, whose burden is lowered. Right, so the burden of me is done is is let go of, right? Of the the problem of being a, a person is done away with. Bhikkhus, when the gods with Indra, with Brahma, with Pajapati seek a bhikkhu who is thus liberated in mind, they do not find anything of which they could say. The consciousness of one thus gone is supported by this. Why is that? One thus gone, I say, is untraceable here and now. Right? So one who's thus gone or Tathagata is untraceable here and now. Right? So it's like the 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 footprints of birds in the sky. Right? There's no trace. Misrepresentation of the Tathagata, and this is the, oh, there's two more, three. All right, um, are, are you guys down to keep going? I think if I finish this, it's probably going to be like another like 30 minutes. I'm going to just keep going. But uh, yeah, everyone's down. Okay, cool. I just didn't want to bore anyone here. <laughs> um, okay, so misrepresentation. Oh, just sorry. I would love to. I will uh, look at the registration like tomorrow. Right now, I have to go. I, I thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Scott. You're yeah, just yeah. amazing. <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming, yeah, everybody. Good. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, bye bye. Uh, all right. He, he can watch the recording if he wants. Um, okay. Misrepresentation of the Tathagata. So saying, Bikus, so proclaiming. I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some recluses and Brahmins thus. This recluse, uh, the recluse Gautama, is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, as I do not proclaim, so I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some recluses and Brahmins thus. The recluse Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. Bhikkhus, both, form both formally and now, what I teach is suffering and the cessation of suffering. If others abuse, revile, scold, 
and harass the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account feels no annoyance, bitterness, or dejection of heart. In other words, he doesn't give a fuck. Right? <laughs> doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, well, you can revile me. Yeah, I don't care. And if others honor, respect, revere, and venerate the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account feels no delight, joy, or elation of heart. Still doesn't give a fuck. If others honor, respect, revere, and venerate the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account thinks thus. They perform such services as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. They perform, see, I'm going to read that again because I need to understand it. They perform such services as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. Ah, so like the Buddhas, he, he, they're praising what has been fully understood before. So he's not taking ownership. He's not taking ownership of the praise, right? Because it's just what had come to be fully understood before, right? That's not me. That's still not him, right? So that's genius. Most people would be like, yeah, I did it. I'm going to start a cult. I'm going to have sex with my students and stuff like that. I'm not against sex, but, you know, probably not a good thing to be doing with your spiritual students. <laughs> uh, therefore, bhikkhus, if others abuse, revile, scold, and harass you, on that account, you should not entertain any annoyance bitterness, or dejection of heart. All right, so this is direct applicable instruction. So people out in the world talk shit about you, Isaiah. You, on that account, you should feel no annoyance, bitterness, or dejection of heart, right? Don't jump in, fr don't jump in front of that arrow and say, this is me, and get hit by it, right? Same with it. Uh, Whatever your coworkers or whatever it is, people at school, friends, don't don't take don't take ownership of that uh, dukkha. Let them keep it, right? Don't 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 let them uh, give it to you. Um, and if others honor, respect, revere, and venerate you on that account, you should not entertain any delight, joy, or elation of heart. If others honor, respect, and venerate you on that account, you should think thus. They perform such services as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. Not yours. Therefore, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. What is not yours? Material form is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Feeling is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Perception is not yours. Abandon it. 
when you have abandoned it, it that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Formations are not yours. Abandon it. Conscious, etc. Consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. Um, Bhikkhus, what do you think? If people carried off the grass, sticks, branches, and leaves in this jetta grove, or burned them, or did what they liked with them, would you think people are carrying us off or burning us or doing what they um, like with us? No, venerable sir. Why not? Because uh, this is neither ourself nor what belongs to self. So if if people like take these profound teachings and they they misuse them or they they shit on them or they don't comprehend them, right? If you're talk, you're talking to your mom, right, and she doesn't get the profundity of it and she poo poos it, you also don't get butt hurt by that because. That doesn't belong to you, right? It's just a raft. Um, <laughs> see, this is where it gets tricky, right? This is where the, it can get very subtle and tricky. So this is this is why this is a very good sutta to understand thoroughly, because these problems will come up uh, time and time again. Um, so too, because whatever is not yours, abandon it. Uh, when you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. What is what is it that is not yours? Um, all of the things that were mentioned earlier. Okay, this is the last one, the last paragraph. In this Dhamma. Because the Dhamma well, well proclaimed by me thus is clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork. Right, so there's nothing there's nothing missing in the Dhamma. There's no like there's no like uh, plot holes. Right. I think like you can find other teachings that have like that aren't like foolproof, like whole and total, right? Because they make claims that are unfounded. Uh the only thing that the Dhamma teaches is again, dukkha dukkha naroda. And that's an experiential here and now thing. Whereas it's not saying, oh, consciousness is the universal self and it's eternal and blah, blah, blah. And we're all just uh, dreams in the mind of the God Vishnu or like some something like that. It's that's a that's not like foolproof. Like that's kind of like an unfounded claim. It cannot be verified here and now. Right. It's not scientific. Um, so the 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 Buddha the Buddha Dhamma is well proclaimed, clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork. In the Dhamma, well proclaimed by by me, thus, which is clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork, there is no future round for manifestation in the case of those bhikkhus who are arhats with taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had had to be done laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and are completely liberated through final knowledge. Bhikkhus, the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus is clear, free of patchwork. In the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, free of patchwork, those bhikkhus who have abandoned the five lower fetters are all due to reappear spontaneously in the pure abodes and there attain final Nibbana without uh, ever returning from that world, bhikkhus, the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, 
is clear, free of patchwork, and the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, free of patchwork, those bhikkhus who have abandoned uh, the three lower fetters and attenuated lust, hate, and delusion are all once returners, uh, returning once to this world to make an end of suffering. Bhikkhus, the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus is clear, free of patchwork, um, who have abandoned uh, three fetters are uh, stream enters, uh, no longer subject to perdition, bound for deliverance and headed for enlightenment. Bhikkhus, the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus is clear, free of patchwork, and the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, free of patchwork, those bhikkhus who are Dhamma followers or faith followers are all headed for enlightenment. Bhikkhus, the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus is clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork. In the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork, those bhikkhus who have sufficient faith in me, su uh, sufficient love for me, are all headed for heaven. Um, th that is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. All right, so that's the end of the sutta. Is there any uh, questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Um, so, like, the whole the whole thing is to just keep coming back to the impermanence of things, the unsatisfactoriness of that impermanence, and because of those things, then the, the realization kind of not so comes. And don't 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 keep coming back to uh, the concept of impermanence and trying to see impermanence in your experience. That's um, kind of artificial. So the, the point is to keep looking. So keep coming back to right view is what you should be coming back to. So looking at a thought as a thought looking as a feeling as a feeling so you're not like coming back to the concept of impermanence and trying to overlay it onto your experience but mm -hmm. in it, instead you are just simply looking looking just to see how it is right yeah um and then you see oh this is a kind of a shitty thought that's creating dukkha but let me change it Right. So get the mind purified, get the mind into a wholesome state. And then what do you do then? Keep looking still. Um, all right. All right. Cool. Good question. Good question. All right, so, uh, oh, DJ, were you about to say something? Yeah, you know what? Uh, <laughs> let's go for it. Um, yeah, no, thinking about uh, or seeing, you know, the thoughts is just thoughts. I and, and 
and not taking them personally though is quite helpful in terms of dividing the thoughts up and not being like into the unwholesome and un or wholesome because it's not like oh we have to defend this thought that arose because it's my thought and i'm gonna hurt its feelings and all You, you can take this sort of beautiful just detached perspective of just seeing the thoughts as thoughts and it's kind of clinical in a way but it's just like wait this is a wholesome thought this is an unwholesome thought but we don't need to lay claim to it we don't it's just like a clear looking at the process rather than like caught up in like the emotional attachment with it um because yeah yeah it's very clinical Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a good word for it it's a clinical operation and even the emotions that arise or the feeling that arise dependent on it are also oh this is a feeling and what type of feeling is it it's either a pleasant or unpleasant feeling still not mine right so you keep uh looking at uh your experience this way and then yeah you can instead of creating unwholesome thoughts because of the unwholesome thoughts like oh shit, i have an unwholesome thought you just see it for what it is and you can um take the right effort um in that scenario um yeah um i think that's a good note to end it on uh thank you everyone for coming um anna thank you for being there um if you have any last words now's your chance isaiah you got any parting thank you yeah thank you man this is always good it's it's really a joy to have you on isaiah and it's and uh you create a lot of good dialogue so it's always a treat to have you here um so thank you everyone uh meta all around and uh uh, see you later bye bye bye